0: listeners. Um, we're, we're going to talk about a subject that has become, I think, um, a verifiable trend is um, vegetarian, in this case vegan, Polish cuisine. Um, we're going to talk to the co-owners of um, Apotheca, um, um which has been winning awards and catching people by surprise because I think not many people expect vegan Polish food, except that as I talk to people, I'm understanding that is something that's happening more and more often. So, but with the co-owners of um, Apteka is Kate Lasky and Tomasz Skoronski, who just got back actually recently uh, from Poland. Um, Was it cold there? No, no, it was no, it
1: was beautiful.
0: lovely. It was yeah. lovely weather. We
2: we looked out completely.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, we just interviewed uh, the, the uh the uh, yeah, the author of a cookbook author um who lives in Warsaw. Um uh, and uh, but let's before we get into that, uh, let's start with what does apteka actually mean?
2: Um Sure. I mean, like, simply, apteka means uh, a pharmacy. Um,
0: That's what I thought.
2: Means, yeah, yeah. It just means pharmacy. I think that when we were um, coming up with a, a a restaurant and coming up with what we wanted to be, uh, we were looking for something that, that was a, a Polish word um, true to roots, but uh, that, um, like, especially Pittsburghers here, here in Western Pennsylvania, yeah. we could, most people could pronounce. And, and, uh, um we were walking through uh i remember we were walking through brooklyn we were we were in uh, southern brooklyn walking towards brighton beach and um where there's a lot of Aptecas, except with a cyrillic p instead of a um instead of the p that we know and you know it, it, around brighton beach there's lots of other neighborhoods where you also have uh lots of people from the caucuses and from kind of satellite states to or, or members of the former Soviet Union. And, you know, the aptecas pop up on corners and they, they kind of serve as flags almost of a, of a neighborhood that has a large enough population, you know, to warrant an apteca. And, and you huh. kind of know that you're in a spot where there's some well, kind of. Well, it's a Eastern catchy name. It's,
0: it sounds really <laughs> exciting. <laughs>
2: I yeah. I mean, <laughs> Poland aptecas are so popular. <laughs> so, yeah, writing off the trend of the popularity of pharmacies in Poland where we're trying to uh capitalize on that here in Pittsburgh.
0: Well, Tomasz, we your do... your name is distinctly Polish. And Kate, yours is too?
1: My Lasky? Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Polish. Kate, yeah, I think so...
0: a little
1: less so. Let's, <sighs> let's just
0: introduce our listeners. Um, to your credentials uh, first polish and second uh, culinary do you want to go first tomas
2: uh sure sure um, yeah so my my name's uh no uh, <laughs> my name's Tomasz Kowronski um, or Tomek Kowronski uh, depending on who I'm talking to or Tom Tom to a lot of contractors um, <laughs> uh, my my parents are both from warsaw uh i you know they they came over um my dad's a uh, a scientist he's a material scientist and um they were both fine and happy in, in warsaw um but when uh martial law took over in the early 80s in 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 poland then yeah. uh academia kind of uh was put on pause especially when you're in like a new science like uh semiconductors and so they <laughs> migrated they moved to the united states and uh, my mother who was a, a a defense lawyer there um they came together and uh you know poland was still uh solidly communist and it seemed like um you know they got they renewed visas but then ultimately they had to make a choice whether they're staying or going and they decided to stay and i i was born here in the states in, in boston and uh and yeah and so and so i was born in um, back in 86 here. And then shortly after the, you know, communism fell and, uh, and I started going back to Poland every year. My mom's extraordinarily close with her family and, um, it wasn't a situation where they were kind of escaping, uh, communism. It was just kind of a a result of circumstance. And so the attitude in my house towards Poland always was, um, pretty warm and my, my family there was really close. So, yeah, starting when I was three, I I went back every year, and I spent my summers in Warsaw you know, with my grandparents, with my cousins who are who are my age. Um, I'm an only child. If I didn't mention that, or Kate likes to point out, a lonely child, and so yeah, the family I
0: was, in Poland. I'm an only child too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a lonely life, but I I,
2: I, I was lucky in that my family in Poland was extraordinarily warm, and um you know, and I I. I I was able to really see a glimpse of Poland starting in a really long time, which was 1991, um, so right after the fall of communism. And when uh, the world between, you know, um, Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania and, and Warsaw, they they were like completely different worlds. And, you know, I would go back and forth being ferried uh, with my mom by airplane every year and, and just got to see these two countries kind of uh, evolve um Poland much more rapidly um especially in the early aughts and so you know i, I the, the contrast of, of the of the two worlds was really uh interesting to me and impressed upon me like you know like i it it just wasn't you know when I went to baskin robbins here like i i had my favorite flavors of rainbow sherbet or whatever and but in poland it's it's black currant it's gooseberry it's mm-hmm. <laughs> uh red currant it's it's plum and um, you know, I, I grew up with a family that was really, um, you know, some cooks were extraordinarily gifted and some were terrible, but either way, there was a uh, widespread, uh, just, you know, there's, there's people doing things so on my dad's side. It was, there were hunters and my grandmother was a biology teacher and, you know, they picked certain kinds of mushrooms in the woods. And oh, on nice. my mother's side, um, they were also picking mushrooms, but not the same ones. And they had, you know, a garden plot in in warsaw where we spent tons of time and and she had a pantry that was just stuck to the brim with with preserves so that, you were exposed
0: you know, to the whole culinary scene very early um yeah and, and, yeah yeah and,
2: in
1: an in intimate way for sure
0: okay what what about your poland connections
1: i mean i i think i have more of like the pittsburgh story of um you know, I, my, I'm fourth generation on my Slavic side, Pittsburgher. And, um, you know, I uh, I think, I you know, we're all in this city that uh, really uh, celebrates its Slavic heritage. We have pierogi that run around the baseball field every game. And, you know, <laughs> I grew up kind of with that as kind of a – it's kind of a part of the, I think, the culture of Pittsburgh, whether or not people have Slavic roots, but also, you know um, – you know, I went to the Croatian Center growing up and we had pierogi at uh, Christmas every year. But it was like really through this lens of like kind of multi-generations in the United States um, where it's still kind of part of the cultural identity. And, uh, you know, then um, when I met Tomas and, you know, we, we were a couple, then we I started to go back to Poland with him every other year. Right. Um, we usually. Now, to how deal, did so. you do the
0: culinary thing? I mean, from Tomas, I understand <laughs> his family focused a lot on food. How about you, Kate? How did you get involved with culinary things?
1: Well, yeah, I guess just my... I just worked in kitchens since I was, you know, 15, 16, and then um, that was just kind of what... The, that was my job through college, and then whenever I met Awesome. We started doing a pop-up restaurant um, called Pierogi Night, and we started cooking together. And um, you know, I think we both weren't really on the trajectory to stay in the food industry. Um, we both studied policy, and we're kind of look- we were excited by that sort of thing. But when we did this pop-up restaurant, and we really um, we really enjoyed cooking together and working together. And the rest the con- the idea for a restaurant kind of came up, and we- I think we were just both really excited to pursue that um as a project so now when did you do this the pop-up restaurant started in uh, late 2010 um oh it's been a long time then. yeah it's been a long time it's been a really long time (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah i mean it was a it was a like there's a lot of like supper clubs now and pop-up restaurants but this was like a real pirate ship you know this was popping up in the back of a of a bar I worked at, and then at art galleries, <laughs> and was floating around in our backyard for a while, and and you know we just made posters and posted them around town and and posted in a few places online, and um, you know, and it kind of came from uh, a little bit less of a chic uh, environment, more of a little bit of a punk attitude, where it was uh, it started off as a five dollar all you can eat pierogi uh, kind of buffet, oh, wow. and then it, yeah. which was a really. Uh, uh, naive uh, but then you know what we we amounted to you know in a little bit was like uh, we'd post we'd be open for one friday a month for two to three hours and we'd serve hundreds of people in that time frame and and, and uh and got to really uh you know it was a tremendous amount of food like we 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 still made more pierogi there in a week than we do now or have ever at of really in for a single week of service it was just tremendous amounts of food and and uh, the scale of it, I think, taught us a lot. But it, it was, you know, it was kind of a, it was really um, rough and tumble without a lot of polish, and really emphasizing just um, cooking and, and kind of making clever food.
1: And you both
0: nice. you both were actually vegetarian right from the get-go.
1: No, I think separately. Like we just came to the same conclusion. Um, we kind of both in high school became vegetarian and then soon thereafter uh, became vegan. And then whenever we met each other, we were both already, um, yeah, we were both already vegan. I think maybe that's part of the spark. Who knows? But (laughs) it's just been the lens through which we've we've seen the world for such a long time. So it really informs the way we eat, obviously, but also like, that's just naturally kind of the our interpretation of Polish food because that's just that's how we kind of see the world if that makes sense
0: mm-hmm. um you know i i i thought that if you think of Polish food, you think of heavy meat laden food uh mm-hmm. and then you know so that to me I mean the idea of having a vegan Polish restaurant in Pittsburgh was like eye opener. <laughs> Uh, no, talking to to this cookbook author or the author of, of one called Polish I don't know. It's polished or Polish. Yeah,
2: with Miho. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're familiar with the book and and his other book.
0: Great stuff. Well, he's he's a big fan of yours. I'm getting you two together. You three together at some point. <laughs> uh, next time amazing. he's in town. Mm? He, he's a Big fan. I mean, he he knew all about you. Yeah. So oh, um. Great. Well but talking to him, um, I, I came to understand that this is not an an isolated case. Uh it's a a big time trend among younger Poles. That that the whole vegan and vegetarian mode is a very big in Poland itself and he's from Warsaw. Um did you know that beforehand or is it
1: new to you? Yeah. I think that there's, I think there's kind of a couple things there that, um, you know, kind of stick out. Which is, yeah, I think that I think globally there's just more of a movement towards eating well, this is true, vegetarian and vegan food, and even like, I mean, we've been vegan for a really long time, and mm-hmm. just there's just so much more availability and kind of oh, excitement yeah. around it than there was yeah. 15 years ago. Um, so I think that's one thing, and I think that. Warsaw, yeah, has I mean, they have two vegan sushi places in Warsaw. There's there's more vegan burger places that than I can count in, in that city. So there's like definitely, you know, I think that um veg- vegetarian or plant forward food is just like um more available in Warsaw. Um and I think Krakow too, like especially the the big cities in Poland. But then also, I think just with Polish food, I I mean, I, I, again, growing up in Pittsburgh, I think I had that association as well with kind of more kind of meat-centered dishes. And I think that, you know, obviously meat is a big part of Polish cooking for sure. You know, Tomas' family um, is made up of like some hunters. And the first time I went over, there was like a boar hanging in his uncle's uh, basement. So it's like that is definitely an element of Polish food. But I think that what's maybe missing in the translation of Polish cuisine in the United States sometimes is just that bounty of everything else and that there's such a major focus on fruit, um, you know, and, and uh cordial making and preservation and vegetables and krauts and all this all these things that are available, not to mention that you have milk bars that were like um You know, really, uh, and Tomas, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think especially during communism, and they were kind of these cafeterias that people would go and eat at, and they were almost entirely vegetarian, and that was just like, that was just based on kind of availability, and that's just how how people ate. You do have kind of this big, um, maybe just something that people don't really associate with Polish food, but kind of plant forward I think is what people are saying now is like uh-huh. it's just a, a way of eating and for us like the vegan thing really fit with that just because there there is so much bounty that's not really um, showcased necessarily and we're just looking at like well here's here's maybe some of the process of Polish food that might be like vegetables aren't necessarily associated with, with like smoking and that sort of thing we can replace meat in that way but by like um, you know, having more things that are smoked or preserved in different ways, but also just highlight some of the things that are already naturally vegan or vegetarian in that cuisine, which is, like, kind of endless. Well,
0: you know, the, uh, talking to Michael Korkas, um about his book, um, it's subtitled Modern Vegetarian Cooking from Global Poland. And he has, uh, of all things, a lot of Asian-inspired recipes in his book um and, and that was interesting because my understanding that poland historically always looked to the west but he says now that, that there's a focus on looking to the east in the cuisine
2: yeah you you know uh, i think i i have a lot of thoughts about like polish cuisine i to comment also on the the vegan, uh, and, and popularism of like veganism in Poland, like, uh, you know, uh, I, there's not a lot of, um, I'll say that like, uh, we, we just were in Warsaw, uh, a few weeks ago and, and, and hung out with, um, some cool, uh, chefs, uh, and, you know, there's nothing like not to, not to point out, but there is nothing like Apteka because I think that a lot of, um, there's not, there. there's a few uh, kind of, there's a little bit of uh, some vegan eateries that might have some more kind of fake meat or kind of replace some classic kind of staple dishes like a schnitzel with some seitan or with um, some kind of TVP product or they might have um, some uh, cutlets or, or pierogi or, or, or whatnot. But I think that um, you still have a lot of looking out and I think that um, from what I understand with Michal's last book is that there's a lot of, um, you know, it's it's looking out towards the east, but it's looking out towards every direction. Um, it's looking out uh-huh. towards, you know, with a telescope that is social media, really. Uh, you know, with, you know, I, I, I kind of remember clearly, like, when high-speed internet, uh, like, really took off in the early aughts in Poland, like, you know, Poland was, like, crazy hip overnight. Um, it was just, it was just really uh, a lot of people were really um, aware and were looking out for what's new and what's cool and interesting. People, you know, from my experience, a lot of young poles are really eager to travel a lot and explore, and so you know, you have a lot of people going to exotic places and bringing those things back and wanting to kind of incorporate them. So you
0: have yeah, it's kind of gotten even more, got more so. so. Yeah, it's going to get more so. I mean, you just had a really important election, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, which I Most think will, yes. <laughs> um, n- now wouldn't did the guy who owns Veg in Philadelphia ever get in touch with you? Um,
2: no,
3: you
0: no, we uh, we don't we don't
2: know each other. No.
0: Oh. Well, because I told him, he, his best friend moved to Pittsburgh, and I said, well, um, he opened Veg in, I think, 1998, which was mm-hmm. a really brave thing to do <laughs> in 1998. Sure. Uh, and, and, yeah, and, and I, when I told him about uh, apteca he was very excited. I thought for sure he'd be in touch with you by now. So, um, But what made you think there was a market in Pittsburgh for this?
2: I, um, you know what, I, we're, uh, Kate, Kate touched on it. Like we're, I think we're coming towards food from a, from a perspective that, um, I think plenty of people come, uh, from, but not, not all people, which is, uh, we really treat the restaurant like a project and, and, um, and we try and be smart about business, but I think it, we weren't ever driven by, uh, business, it just seemed kind of like, like a, I would compare it to like a band puts out a record without knowing that people will love the music. Um, uh-huh. So I think that in a similar way, we had the pop-ups and they were really popular. Like they were, you know, we, we had those long lines and lines that I would never wait in myself and people were really supportive <laughs> and
0: really excited.
2: And, um, you know, and, and, and I think that we had a an audience that was really eager for exciting and good food and um you know, that line is you know, and, and still is Apteca, like it's there are vegetarians and there's vegans in it, but the vast majority of people that come to Apteca um aren't uh vegan or vegetarian. And, and you know uh, I've
0: noted that too. Either. Yeah, yeah, I've noted that about Apteca as well. Um Yeah and, now, and and so did you ever ever yeah. anticipate how revered this president. You have very limited hours. Why don't you explain about that so that our listeners know (laughs) what to look
1: for? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for, since the pandemic, then we kind of, um, we started doing limited service. So we do Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, dine-in hours. And it's honestly, it's just because before the pandemic, then like Tomas and I were just working kind of, absolutely insane hours that were unsustainable. And, yeah. uh, you know, we just didn't see anybody and we didn't have days off. And it was really rough. And, uh, <laughs> no, life. Just, no life. Yeah, yeah, no life. But and just like really working ourselves to the bone. And because the restaurant is vegan, because we're doing everything from scratch, then it just everything just takes a lot more time because you have to make your base ingredients. So if you're going to make uh, you know, a yogurt. Then you have to make a milk first out of nuts, and then you have to culture your yogurt. And we're making all the krauts. We're we're really trying to do everything. Um, you know what we're kind of seeing is the right way and really authentically, and then also from scratch and using. Yeah, nice yogurt is not vegan. Isn't it? <laughs> yogurt, yeah. Is not so you, I mean, vegan. you have to, you have to make up a recipe, you know, and try to like problem solve that. And same thing with like ice creams and desserts and all these things. Yeah, so I know. it was really just like. It took it took a lot, so that's why we do the limited hours um, because there's just so much prep involved. To and you have a wine shop, right? We do, yeah. We do a wine shop on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and it's like focused on Central and Eastern European wines, really Central European. Oh, nice. Right. Yeah, yeah, who, who yeah. knew there
0: was a? I, I was really shocked to find out there was a a, a big wine um, wine background in in Central. In, Eastern Europe. I mean, yes, absolutely, I
1: just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll really carry some amazing producers. Um j- just
0: the for people who don't have a, a clear idea, uh, could you pick a few dishes and and explain what they are, describe them, make people hungry? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think we, like, we we really try to rotate the menu based on what's in season. Uh, we work really closely with farmers in the Western Pennsylvania area, um, some, like, friends who started farms, and we've been buying from forever, and then we just recently started buying from uh, an Amish community. So, really, it's, like, some of the menu's just dictated by uh, what's around. I think something that stays on the menu with some permanence is the kotlet serrarove, which is a uh, schnitzel. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of a really standard Polish lunch that we're replacing a, um, you know, it's typically like a pork schnitzel with a celeriac schnitzel. So we roast, uh, celeriac and bread and fry it. And then it comes with some dilly potatoes and a horseradish sauce. That's with this, the yogurt that we make, um, out of like a cultured and, uh, cashew and almond cream. And then it has like three kind of uh, saruski, so like little salads of beets and cabbage and um, like right now it's a leek and apple salad. So that that's one that's like kind of always around. That. And that's a favorite. That's a popular one. I think it's one that like every time I end up trying it again, I'm like, oh, this is really good. And it's like <laughs> it's just it's had some space on the menu for a long time. So it's, it's easy to kind of forget about it. But, um, you know, it's a reason that we keep it on because there's it's just really fun to eat. So I mean, what's yeah, your most popular I,
0: dish?
2: Right. Well, you're yeah. I, I mean, I I get that. Uh, yeah. We don't. It really like weekend to week, it's it, it changes. It depends on on a lot of little things. Um, I like on that note. Like I think pretty much the rest of the menu, apart from the cutlet, like changes, definitely at least once seasonally, and and oftentimes. Um, more than once within that season because our availabilities are so short. So usually we'll have a, you know, I would say that what's pretty popular are our stuffed dishes, like stuffed um, vegetables are, are, uh, are classic for a lot of cuisines, um, but certainly within Slavic cuisines and, and Polish in particular. And so, you know, the way we start off is uh, in the like late spring, we'll have, we do like a, a stuffed cabbage, but we kind of, uh use a a a younger more tender cabbage and and do less of a roast on it and uh you know we did that earlier this year and they're kind of uh shaped a little bit differently uh to try and reflect um some stuffed cabbages that we really from ukraine that were kind of more cigar shaped and long and they were in like a carrot broth and they themselves were stuffed with k or correct me but i think that they were uh uh, rice and um, fermented, uh, maybe sauerkraut, and then like a maybe a little bit of also um, fermented carrot in there. Uh, that was all kind of seared off. Um, so th- there's a lot of things. Like I think menu is a little interesting, uh, where we uh, gloss over some ingredients um, that are actually a little complex, but we do end up fermenting a lot um, and uh, different kinds of pickling. But um, what we don't typically do is just kind of leave the fermentation to just kind of sit on the plate by itself but usually we take it just to kind of open up a vegetable so a few so it's either increase the acidity or kind of make a few of those uh, aromas from it pop a little bit like you know fermenting beads to kind of make them a little bit fruitier so uh so cigars in early like kind of early spring and or spring to early summer and then we went to Uh, a stuffed uh, zucchini um, and then we can go to a stuffed tomato and then we go from stuffed tomato to a stuffed cabbage again um, and then we go from stuffed cabbage to stuffed onion and I think in each way like we kind of we're not stuffing them with the same thing nor are we kind of they don't sit on the oh yeah there's stuffed peppers along the way as well Um, but (laughs) I think where you know I found
0: way. out where I started stuffing things that it just it it perpetuates itself. <laughs> One thing leads to another, leads to another. Yeah, I remember
2: pretty doing much. That I mean, it, 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 it is pretty exciting, and and then like with the staff too, I gotta say that like every time something new's coming on, then everyone gets so excited because really? uh, it's. It's just been a long time since we, ha- like, it, it's like you just kind of, like, are excited for the next thing. And then as soon as, like, stuffed onions last year uh, in wintertime, I mean, people were, uh, it doesn't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I saw in the New York Times that they were uh, recommending for Thanksgiving a stuffed onion. But, um, yeah, we were we were doing a stuffed onion last year that people were just crazy for. And uh, and you just kind of eat it until you're sick of it. And then by the time it comes back, then you forgot all about that. And you're, you're back to just starving for it but every every set is different and i would think that the the thing that combines them is really trying to uh you know it's it's always a balance of trying to figure out the right um
0: billing um but it's, it's my, you know my, i mean it's when we talked about heavy um i mean i once judged a pro league contest in near kenwood park <laughs> <laughs> i didn't think i was going to be able to stand up <laughs> but i i was absolutely astounded at the things that they stuffed into pierogies, I mean, not following the the, the uh, traditional um, stuffings, but people trying to get clever and and coming up with really awful things. <laughs>
4: sure. <laughs> <Not> only, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's
0: um, like an
2: ad with, t- Um. For sure. I mean, yeah. So we, I, I, I think that we, uh, I think we try and, uh, we, we we have a kind of idea of what makes sense for the, the food that we're trying to cook, all right? And, and I think that we're trying to reflect real Polish and real Slavic uh, traditions, and specifically from, when you say that, it was an asterisk of when are you talking about exactly? And I think we're talking about really like 20th, 19th century, like, like a lot of uh, things that were kind of staples and uh, favorites, and not from necessarily noble classes, um, in terms of, uh, uh, aristocracy, uh, where you're just doing kind of honey glazed pheasants in, in, in yeah. red currant sauce, but rather there's, you know, starches and, and, and vegetables like make up the, the bulk of food. And, and I think that that filling this, we don't see things like we try and cook things so that people are filled, but they're not, um, it's not necessarily very heavy. So I think we rely on, you know, we, uh, have generous portions and, and try and make dishes that are built to feed and to make people fed in a, in a, in a whole way with a, uh, with kind of like just feeling healthy and good and solid and, and, uh, and, and, and strong enough to move forward. I guess.
0: Were, were you surprised about, I mean, you, you've you been nominated for James Beard awards and you've, um, you're on the best restaurant list and, that people seek you out. I mean was this it doesn't sound like you started out aiming for this kind of recognition. So were you surprised? No.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think we just I you know we we both grew up in Pittsburgh and I think our big aim was like to have um a restaurant that people wanted to eat at here and that we could kind of provide a space. I think just in a city that really it's like there's um it comes down to like just a little bit of momentum of people doing things because we're a city of 300,000 people and a couple of restaurants closing means it feels sometimes like, oh my gosh, we have nowhere to eat, even though there's lots of people doing awesome things. So I think our big goal was like, let's do something in the city that we grew up in and, and and make it kind of more of the city that we want, we want to see. And it's really great that, you know, we've, it's, it's, yeah, it's like absolutely humbling and an honor to have the recognitions that we've had, but it definitely wasn't something that we kind of anticipated or expected. Yeah. Well,
0: you found really well. We just came back from um, visiting our kids in Philadelphia, and um, my uh, daughter-in-law uh, is um, Polish. Um, her um, grandmother was Polish-born polish born and uh, her her um, her brother, I mean, her, her uncle was Polish-born, although they moved around. Her mother ended up being born in Brazil, but they still held on to the Polish food traditions. And there was one dish that, um, when I talked about the Polish cookbook and so forth, that her um, son's father-in-law, uh, who was not Polish, but, um, but his mother-in-law used to make it for him. And I can—I made a point in my head to remember what it was to ask you about it. He's been dying for it. I, and now I forgot it. Do you remember it, Rabbit? No, I don't
4: remember. I, I, it I, I, it sounded
0: I, like a Chinese.
4: I, I was engaged with Uncle John talking about other things. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, well, I mean, it certainly... All of this has made an enormous impression on us, I can tell you. Um, one last thing is um, a website. Do you have
1: an updated
0: website?
1: Yeah, yeah. We we do. Well, we usually, well, you know what we're good at updating is the menu. So you, the menu on our website is always, it's like we post it every uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Okay. How
0: about giving our listeners the website URL?
1: It's aptecapgh.com. dot com.
0: Great. Well, I mean, I'm I really, I'm very pleased for, for both of you. Um, I mean, you have a lot of guts and you have a lot of stamina. I mean, you you tackle a lot of things at once, and, and I'm very, I find it all very impressive. And I I thank you for, for taking time to to talk to us, Kate Lasky and Tomasz Uh Apteca is the restaurant, it's located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, don't miss it. And be sure to check the hours so that you get there when they're open. Um, <laughs> how many do you see, by the way?
1: Oh, in the summer, uh, we have our patio open. Well, even still now, we have a big patio, so it's, it's uh, at least 80. Um, this time of year, and then it kind of shrinks whenever it's really cold, to so maybe 60. Still a lot of work,
0: believe me, oh, <laughs> running around. Yeah, yeah. I, I was yeah. so happy that I, I tried doing that in my early 20s and got it out of my system, and I never wanted to open another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: a great time to just <laughs> to, to try it out. Well, well again, thank you so much for
4: having us on the
1: podcast oh, and, um, and for your
4: time and your kind words. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm I wasn't, proud I wasn't of allowed, you. I wasn't allowed to speak, but I I, I need to give <laughs> I need to give our listeners a, a very important piece of information. Apteca is just across the street from the Allegheny Cemetery. <laughs> That's
2: <laughs> true. One of, and, and it's worth noting that the Allegheny Cemetery is one of the gems of the city. I, I tell everyone, in my opinion, if it was in a different city, there'd be brochures handed out at the airport to go visit it. I think it's I a pretty it's special. Sure. It's
4: fabulous. No, that, that, that's certainly true. I, I, I did not for a moment mean my remark to diminish. The attractiveness and the importance of Abtei, oh, <laughs> or
0: of, of the algae, But it's worth pointing out, nonetheless. It, yeah, it, it
4: just kind of, it's, it's a little different, shall we say? Yeah, it's the great neighbors. Uh, well,
0: keep having fun, you guys, thanks and so thanks much. again.
1: Thank you so much. Thank and
0: you coming so We'll see you soon. Sounds okay. great. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye.
2: Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net.
0: Oh, listeners. (laughs) We're going to have fun today. We're going to be talking to Carrie Jones and John McCarthy. Uh, about their book, Every Cocktail Has a Twist, and this is more fun, <laughs> Carrie and John. Um, i really thoroughly enjoyed uh, leafing through it, and Peter has all kinds of ideas about it. Um, it. There's a lot I didn't know about cocktails,
4: I must say. The first thing I really well, want we're to ask is... glad to be able to fill some stuff in for you. Okay. What, what, my, fir- my first question is, what did you leave out? <laughs> I, 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 if it was there I couldn't find it <laughs> it's
0: thorough he's saying I mean it is thorough um, it's, uh, yeah
4: we
5: really wanted to um, just really cover the ground of classic cocktails um, everything from martinis in Manhattan things that are traditionally considered classics but also more current drinks that people just love making like the Aperol Spritz and espresso martinis so you know we want there to be something for everyone so we're glad that um we're glad that's the case
4: well let's let's begin let's begin at the very beginning just uh, <laughs> just just so uh, just so people have a, have an idea what 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 they're going to be able to know when they buy your book and the first area is it's called the basics what are the basics in 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 this chapter in the book you include things that I would never have even thought of. And yet, and yet, and yet you thought of them, and by implication, if, if I wasn't doing all these other things, I was probably making lousy cocktails.
5: <laughs> Not necessarily lousy cocktails, um, but we do think that there's, there's just a big difference between um, the average drinks that people make at home and what they can do, just with a few tips and tricks. And, The essential equipment so we really wanted to go over just um the simple tools you should have at home for example it's just like baking you wouldn't try to um bake cookies without a tablespoon set or an oven set to the correct temperature and so similarly once you really establish the basics of home bartending your cocktails will just become so much better
4: now now so here, here are a couple of things out of out of this particular chapter one is called stirring a drink now (laughs) <laughs> you might say well why, why why did I feel it necessary to tell someone how to stir a drink but but, but yet you explain why who would like to explain why well the reason
3: you're stirring a drink um, is to add not just chill the drink but you're adding water to the drink we call it ice melt typically okay a properly stirred drink will have an ounce of water added to it while while you're stirring. So you have to stir about 15 seconds. Um, that will chill the drink, and it will um, add this ice melt. And one of the things that we like to tell people between stirring and shaking is if you think about it in cooking, um, when you're shaking, you're using a whisk, and you're whisking it, and you're aerating it. When you're Uh stirring, it's more like you're folding in one ingredient into the other.
4: Yeah. So stirring is what what you should do. No, they're different for
0: every every cocktail. Yeah. A rule of thumb is if
3: it has citrus in it, usually you're going to shake it. If there's no citrus juice in it, if it's just um, alcohol and... um, uh, cordials and other liqueurs, then you're going to stir it.
4: Okay. For instance,
3: you would stir a martini, you wouldn't shake it regardless of what James Bond said.
0: <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say you you answered the question that everybody asked shake uh, it or stir it. <laughs> no, that
4: was that was gonna be that going to be my next question. But the, the question after that says muddling it doesn't, it, doesn't sound, it doesn't sound very interesting. In fact, it sounds like quite the opposite. But but yet it's <laughs> fundamental. But but yet it's fundamental to having the cocktail that you specify all the ingredients, having it come out right.
5: Absolutely, and it it does sound like a bit of a muddle. That's true. It's not necessarily the most appealing term um it's it's a bad
0: choice of terms but it's standard (laughs) it's classic
5: (laughs) yeah it is um but the tool is called a muddler so that's (laughs) that's where we are and muddling is essentially just breaking up an ingredient um and you'll use it often with herbs or an ingredient like ginger or a fruit um and Essentially what you're doing is kind of making a bit of juice right in your cocktail shaker. If you think about smashing up a strawberry, um, you're you're letting a lot of the juice out so that when you then shake the cocktail, you're really getting that flavor into the cocktail. Um, there are many ingredients where um, running them through a juicer isn't the best option, um, but using a muddler is. Okay. You
0: know, I, I think we forgot to actually give our listeners um, – why your views as experts on this what are your respective backgrounds in cocktails
5: uh well we've been uh, teaming up on cocktail writing for about 10 years um but professionally <laughs> i'm a food and drink writer generally um i've been in that field for over 15 years um, writing about food spirits wine and all of that and then uh, john is the bartender half of the equation right um, and, I have to
0: refer
3: to myself as a mixologist, but essentially, I'm the bartender, and <laughs> I in bar programs and worked with brands on recipe development uh, for for quite a while now.
0: I just wonder when they introduced that term. I remember when they introduced it, mixologist. It just sounded so uppity.
4: It seemed very odd to me. But but but, but John, you you are an actual working. Oh yeah. Guy, be, guy behind yes, the I bar been, i've been
3: yes i've been um currently i am writing right now um but uh uh pre-pandemic i was always behind the bar
4: okay, okay now let, let's so let's go on to the next question know what to oh no i'm not, not missus what invest in the right bottles who, who who would like to explain why you suggest that's not a good idea that I mean it is a good idea Sure, I think that's not that, a good idea. <laughs>
5: I think that often when people are just learning to make drinks at home, there's the tendency to want to go out and buy one of everything. Buy a bottle of vodka, a bottle of gin, tequila, yeah. almost as if you're sort of setting up a, a catering bar in your own home, um, which is fine, but it's, it's an easy way to spend a lot of money on yeah. ingredients you might not necessarily use. So the approach we recommend is to start with a drink you know you like. Um, If you're a Manhattan drinker, you can invest in a great rye or bourbon and a good sweet vermouth. If uh, margaritas are more your speed, uh, then a good tequila and perhaps an orange liqueur. But if you start building your collection with um, the ingredients for drinks you know you like, it will kind of evolve organically from there um, and just be more suited to your own taste.
0: Did, you know, I just did. You read? I don't even remember where the auction was. That a, a bottle of whiskey went for three million dollars. Yes, it was a uh,
3: Macallan that was bottled after sixty years of aging exactly. in 1986.
0: So, so well, what if you got that? as so you spent three million dollars on it, and it turned out to be awful?
3: <laughs> well, I wouldn't open it.
0: But you wouldn't open it at all. Never. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you like the, your chicken story, the, it rabbit. It doesn't be worth a million anymore. Rabbit, this is like your three-legged chicken story. It was oh. ran to the fast, but it was for running and not cooking, right?
4: <laughs> I mean,
0: this this bottle is for bidding at auctions, but not and maybe even displaying for a while, but not drinking, right?
4: Okay, exactly. Well, this, that, that'd be our stance. <laughs> that, that was, that, that, no, that, that's like the story of Germany during during the days between the wars, when when Germany was in really bad shape. And it's all about the, what happens to a to a package of eggs, and at the very end, having finally got to into the hands of someone who actually wanted to eat the the, the eggs. He complained to the person who was trying, selling them to him, and the person selling it to him said, "But these eggs—these were eggs were for selling; they were not for buying. When <laughs> they were not for eating, they were for buying and selling." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a, that's about it. Okay, um, ne- next next one, and this was this, this was—I won't say it was a surprise, but it was a shocker. Know what to refrigerate? There are. Oh yeah, I wondered about that too. Well, We've been doing I'm it asking, all wrong. That's why I'm asking the question, because I wanted to know the answer. And
0: I didn't think you knew. We, we never as, put the as, vermouth in the refrigerator.
5: There are uh, a few ingredients in cocktails that really do perform better once they're open, if you do refrigerate them. And um, I would guess so what you're thinking of is vermouth. Um, vermouth is a wine-based product, um, and... It, once it's open, it starts to oxidize and it starts to um, – those, those delicate flavors that are all part of the vermouth, they'll start to go flat. And a, a good vermouth can last easily six months or perhaps more in the fridge. Um, and, and if you've had a good bottle of vermouth you know, open and out for a few weeks, it's probably just fine. The, the real issue is um, if you open a bottle of dry vermouth in particular and then stick it in a warm liquor cabinet – and leave it there for 5 years which is the context in which plenty of people uh, encounter vermouth it'll it'll taste oxidized and not in a good way it'll taste stale it'll it'll all the nuance in it will have gone flat so something um, really fun to do if you do have vermouth on hand is go out and buy a bottle of the same vermouth open it up and taste it next to one that you haven't refrigerated and you're likely to notice a difference it i'm running there.
0: out of refrigerator space <laughs> i keep the vodka in the refrigerator <laughs> that's probably wrong too huh
4: no no when i when when i get into reading the the balance of the this wonderful book i i i get into then some of the actual potable beverages that you're going to want to put in your cocktail and and you have lots of them Quite honestly, lots, lots of them I never even heard of. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, uh, what, what, what about some, some, some of the ones that you don't come across all that often? So I'm, I'm I have the, I have the book open to the pages that have in them, and you have a whole chapter, and verse, I guess as well, of spritzes. Now, absolutely. What's a, what's a, what's a spritzer? So a spritz is
5: a drink that has some sort of um, aperitif or similar or similar liqueur with sparkling wine and a bit of soda. Um, and the derivation of the word is from um, the German word spritzen, um, which means a splash. So okay. the initial spritz drinks um, in in Europe were local wine um, with a bit of soda added to them, and Today, the the drink is essentially an evolution of that. So, the Apérol Spritz is one that's become very, very popular um, internationally, really, in the last decade or so. And Apérol is a, a delicate, um, right, bitters- bittersweet, uh, beautifully red liqueur from uh, the north of Italy. And you combine it with sparkling wine and sparkling water, and it's just a it's a drinkable, low proof all day sort of cocktail. Um, and from there, we have lots of variations with different ingredients.
4: No, it's it's morning. It's morning. Maybe it's the morning after. So you turn to the section called Bloody Marys, of which <laughs> there are quite a few pages.
0: Oh, wow, lots of them.
4: Put 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 us put us in touch with the Bloody Mary as you understand and enjoy it.
5: Absolutely, we think that. Let's see, if you go to some restaurants nowadays, they'll have clarified Bloody Marys and Bloody Marys with carrot juice and all sorts of things like that. We think that the essence of the drink really is tomato juice, horseradish, um, black pepper, those kind of strong, bold flavors. Um, But from there, we vary it quite a bit. We have a Bloody Mary with smoky mezcal. We have a Bloody Mary with um, sherry. And uh, one of John's specialties Is what we call our uh, four-ingredient simple Bloody Mary mix, which is one of the best shortcuts in the book. And I'll let him explain that one. Go ahead, Neil.
3: In our book, we made four uh, distinct Bloody Mary mix bases that then you can add uh, your alcohol to. We have our classic Bloody Mary mix. We made one with tomatillos. We made one Yeah, I love that.
0: that, By the way, I thought that would be great. Because we we have tons of them, and I never know what to do with all these tomatoes. <laughs> we grow them.
3: <laughs> well, you
4: can drink them. <laughs> That's a great, great idea. <laughs> here's here's one for you. It's, 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 it's a question, and if it's the answer being what it is, it might say, "Boy, we we learned these people something." But Anne's, Anne's mother was an avid gardener. And one of the things she made she was proudest of was her garden tomato collection. Mm. One, one, one year she planted more than a, more than 100 different plants and we were to, totally inundated with freshly squeezed tomato juice.
5: That's a great problem to have, I would say. Oh,
4: well, well the, the the reason that I was Suggesting that I had something maybe you might be interested in, it would be to have exactly that to have a Bloody Mary made with tomato juice, which was freshly picked from your very garden. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it's, now, just, it's just a different sensation altogether. Yeah.
0: Now, how did you got, go around selecting what you believe to be the classic cocktails?
5: With a lot of conversation. Um, we wanted to focus on about 25 of them. And some of them are quite obvious. You're not going to write a book about classic cocktails without the martini, the old fashioned, things like that. Mm-hmm. And from there, we wanted to focus on things that people really drink and they order when they go to bars and they'd be interested in making it home. So for example, we have a whole chapter on eggnog, which isn't going to be in a classic cocktail book necessarily, but is something people love making for parties and drinking, especially what right now, it? right around the holidays.
0: Which, which one is it? Uh, eggnog.
5: Oh, I, uh,
0: oh, I've never had an eggnog that I liked ever. It's so heavy. Well, now worked. you can. Yeah, because you lighten yours up. <laughs> you do. I was surprised at that yeah that you you included that and which leads to another question when you variation when you give, add variations to classics of any sort in food or drink uh, or anything else i suppose um uh, sometimes you're viewed as blasphemous. do you have purists uh, writing you about some of the, the liberties you took with their classic cocktails? <laughs>
5: Not necessarily. I think, I think as in any profession, you will have sticklers for whatever they think the correct and the only correct way to make a cocktail is, and, and that's fine. Um, but these days, um, if you go to a cocktail bar and you see a creative menu, a lot of the drinks on it will be renditions of classics. Um, it will be in the template of a Negroni or an Old Fashioned. So, And even if you read um, – some older cocktail books from the from the 40s, um, even from the late 19th century, a lot of the drinks are variations on other drinks. Um, mm-hmm. That's how a lot of classics emerged. So I, I would say that um, experimenting with classics is, is firmly in the tradition um, of even traditional bartending.
4: You know, some, somebody, somebody who is as knowledgeable as you are, possibly even more so, because he was he was from New Orleans and he lived there his whole life but uh, what was I going to say
0: about the Sazerac
4: oh yes yes my 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 favorite drink if you like south of the border happens happens to be a Sazerac but but having ordered that lots and lots of times somebody told me that in fact the original Sazerac used cognac rather than well, he uses cognac rather, in your, your ra- book, don't ra- you? rather than bourbon. Oh, he does. I didn't get to that page. Yeah,
0: you 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 define that as uh, cognac, right, in the book? Uh,
3: originally, yes, because New Orleans was uh, a
4: French colony. Exactly. So I knew So was they would product. have been drinking
3: um, cognac.
4: Right. So so originally it was cognac, but when cognac got to be in short supply this is the story we got that's exactly that's right That's okay it so happens that my book fell open to a page headed up French 75 oh <laughs> <Is> <laughs> my best describe? friend
0: gotten was getting <laughs> married and my mother who's not much was not much of a drinker I decided that for her shower we were going to do a giant punch bowl of French seventy-five, <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, which well, no, we did. No, no, hold on, a minute. let's 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 get things straight. What the hell? He's a French. He's a French seventy-five. A it? not an old Frenchman. Maybe it is.
5: <laughs> no, it's not.
4: The um, the
3: seventy-five is actually named after the French seventy-five millimeter. Uh, Canon from World War I is where the name comes from.
0: Oh, and, oh I never knew that.
3: And that drink, um, it, there's, two, there's two differing opinions on whether or not it was a cognac-based drink first or it was a gin drink, or perhaps the British soldiers were drinking it with cognac but then got back to England and didn't have cognac, so they started making it with gin. But it's a, a spirit, a little bit of lemon, a little bit of sugar, and sparkling wine.
0: You know, you have so many little tidbits about the history and development of um, these cocktails that, I mean, you, you, you learn a lot, uh, listeners, uh, just reading through this book, even if you're not drinking at all. Um, I never <laughs> knew the whole story behind uh, rum with the Cuban crisis and everything.
5: But tell us Absolutely. a little bit about that. the, um, the, the 20th century history of rum could fill, I mean, it could fill entire books. There are entire books written about it. Um, But just like anything, cocktails get caught in, you know, the winds of history and commerce and trade and all of that. It's uh, it's
0: fascinating. I mean, I don't know that it's ever really registered on me that all of this uh, rum we were buying, uh, supposedly uh, Cuban rum, wasn't Cuban at all. The U.S. cannot import anything from Cuba.
5: Exactly, exactly. But um, I mean, one of our favorite tricks is that in virtually every other nation, you can. So if you uh, stop by a duty-free, at you know, exactly. Pedro or
0: Charles de Gaulle,
5: you can probably find Havana Club and bring it home. What can't
0: uh, won't they catch you bringing in?
5: Um, currently, Americans are allowed to import up to two liters of. Uh, not import. Bring for personal use up to two liters of Cuban spirits. Last I checked. Okay. So, <laughs> as long as you're not uh, doing a secondhand business to bars in the area, you're probably
4: safe. Now that's a relief. Now let's go on to the next paragraph. Buy these bottles. Remember, this is French 75. So, so what? So what? What should I buy? You should buy London Dry Gin. Such as beefeaters. Exactly. For because this book focuses
5: on classic cocktails, we tend to yes. like using pretty traditional representations of each it, spirit. Sure. Um, so a beefeater will be lovely, in a French 75, as will Tanqueray, as will Plymouth, which isn't technically London dry, but in quite a similar style. Um, there's so many gins these days, and all of them have really distinct expressions. And one fun thing is to um, really learn what you like in your French 75. You know, you might you might like uh, a gin with a really different botanical profile. But our our approach is to start with the classic um, and kind of go from there. So that's why we'd recommend uh, something like Beefeater.
3: A thing we like to tell people about gin is that think of gin as flavored vodka. It's just not flavored with <laughs> vanilla. Cute. It's not flavored with oranges. It's flavored with juniper. It's flavored with lemon peel. It's flavored with anise root. Um, and each gin has its own recipe of what herbs and botanicals it's using uh, to make their, uh, their taste That's their brand. And you can really explore this, for example, one brand's gin and tonic compared to another brand's gin and tonic are going to be very different. And then you can also, there's so many new tonics out there with different flavored tonics you can really, really explore.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm always fascinated by these people that will only drink one kind of um, a tonic. Uh, and, and I mean, I knew somebody also who would only drink the old, smaller bottle of Coca-Cola. I mean, how much difference is there, really?
5: I think everyone has their quirks. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I, mean,
0: you I was pleased to discover, by the way, that you had the um, Nonina family in there, the Amaro. Uh, we we happened to have known them for quite a long time. And, in fact, they did the entire lunch menu for us at, at their uh, headquarters. Where instead of there was only one course, the fish course, uh, was the only course that was paired with wine. The rest of it was paired with grappa. <laughs>
5: mm-hmm. That's a that's a great friend to have. Uh, Nonino is just a, a spectacular product. Uh, oh, well, they're
0: they're wonderful. The, the family is just wonderful. But I mean, grappa. It's certainly much different. I went to school in in Florida, and the grappa—it was what we could afford as students, and it was like gasoline. And so they've really elevated the the product itself. Um, But having it, I I had to tell the the server that I'm going to put my glass close to the edge of the table and you take it away if it, as if it were empty because you could, I don't know how you could go to an entire tasting menu with, paired with grappa.
5: That's, that's intense. That's what I would call that. <laughs> I would be drinking
3: a lot of water. <laughs>
4: there you the, 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 only, the, the only thing is, the, uh, I, I, I'm really sorry for the patron of the entire family, because he doesn't get, to, he doesn't, he doesn't really get to do anything. Yeah. Well, now tell, tell me this. His daughters um, just tell him exactly what to do and when to do it. Tell me this. Um,
0: how did you, did you rely a lot? Well, you you have a great deal of information about history and development, which is really valuable information for um, all my readers there, um, but. How did you figure out? Did you invent some of these twists basically yourself?
5: Nearly all of them, absolutely. Yes. Um, John's background is very much in recipe development for all the bars and restaurants he's worked at. So there was there was a lot of um, experimentation. There are a lot of uh, versions that didn't make it into the book, but we made many, many, many cocktails um, through the course <laughs> of this Yeah.
0: Um, was there anything when you were researching your book that really surprised you?
5: Let's see. What, what surprised us in researching the book? Um, I think just that even these pretty basic cocktails, there really are infinite variations, and there are new products coming to the market all the time, new ideas in the cocktail world. And so even in... Um, a cocktail that has pretty tight parameters, there's just so much you can do with them.
3: I'll tell you something that really surprised me in the development of the recipes. Um, we were working on the eggnog chapter in July, and it was 100 degrees out. And I was <laughs> really surprised that eggnog, when it was really hot out, was quite refreshing.
0: Really? Yes. I would never <laughs> guess that. It was also quite filling, so I couldn't have that much of it. But
3: right. a cold glass of eggnog when it was really hot, I thought to myself, oh, this is nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, I could never think of it as refreshing. I always think of it as heavy. But I guess the most times when you get it at the holidays, it's probably pre-made and purchased that way anyhow, you right?
5: Exactly. And um, our recipe for fresh eggnog in the book, we have two different eggnog bases, um, and one of them you just make in the blender. You toss uh, eggs, sugar, heavy cream in the blender, whiz it all up, and you have eggnog pretty much instantly. And I think that sometimes people who don't like eggnog have usually had the store-bought version, which has a lot of stabilizers. It's often made with corn syrup. And I think gloppy is the word that comes to mind. It's just it's heavy. It's really heavy. Yeah,
0: heavy, heavy. Um,
5: and, Especially if you uh,
0: put, pair it with what they usually put on the buffet for the holidays, some kind of icky casserole, <laughs> like <the> cream of <laughs> mushrooms and green beans. That's
5: exactly right. <laughs> yeah, we think um, good eggnog should should be rich um, with all those flavors,
4: but it doesn't have to be heavy. And it should right. be
3: frothy. I was thinking, I was, I was thinking you would... It air and, and lightness to it.
4: I was thinking you might say a good egg, a good, good eggnog... Nuggets when it's been poured down the toilet. (laughs) No. He's serious about eggnog. I'm being wicked today, I know. Uh, (laughs) Well, uh,
5: give this one a try and let us know what you think.
4: (laughs) Right. Um. section, a a, a paragraph I slipped by and I I just remembered it is you spend quite a lot of time on making sure people are using the right glassware.
0: Oh yeah, that that was an interesting
4: give, chapter. Give us give, give us give us a little give us our a little guidance as to as to what you can do simply without spending a fortune. Get yourself the glass that's absolutely right for this particular cocktail.
5: Absolutely. Um, if you are making a drink that is not going to have ice in it, so a drink that you're going to serve up. Um, traditionally, it's in a stemmed glass. Um, that way, your hand is not warming the drink as you sip it. So you can oh. think of a martini glass. There, we prefer to serve martinis in a classic coupe, um, yeah. rather than the V-shaped glass. Um, and if you have a drink that you're going to serve with ice, um, a rocks glass, just a, you know, a, a short, short, wide glass is really what to serve that in. And you you don't have to necessarily go to a specialty glassware store you know if you have wide juice glasses that can serve as a rocks glass for example um but you know kind of having room for that ice and the drink over it is the key as As well as you just you just mentioned
0: what your next book is going to have to cover (laughs) by the way is that you, you you need to get into all this the new stuff about ice i mean some bartenders i know um have three different ice makers for their bar. And there's so a we Japanese have four version ice that, in our home. The pardon?
3: We have four different ice makers in our home. Do you really? <laughs> we
0: Well, do. see, that's your next book, isn't it?
5: <laughs> we have to give a, a quick shout out um, to our friend Camper English is sort of known as the the ice authority in the cocktail world and he has a pretty recent book called the ice book where if if you want to get into the if you really want to geek out about ice if you want to get into the minutia of how uh different ice shapes and clarity and all that can affect flavors um it's it's a great book it's pretty it's the, the what is it could
0: book. you tell me again
5: it's, uh, it's called just called the ice book
0: i highly ice recommend
5: book.
0: it ice book and and who's the author
5: His name is Camper English. K E M. C A M P E R. -R.
0: Oh, I have that wrong already, English. I can spell.
4: (laughs) It's it's, it's a French make of shoes.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, um, do you have cocktails every day? how did you research this and stay, stay upright? <laughs> I used to have cocktails
3: every day, but my doctor told me to slow down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you really did. Huh? Well, it's I'll the tell you, listeners, uh, you may uh, not uh, want to uh, have every one of these, um, and, uh, not want to have them all at once, but you're going to learn a lot and realize that there's a lot you don't know about um, this cocktails. In fact, the, the fact that uh, Everyone associates cocktails with American, and in fact, there are just as many old-world cocktails, aren't there?
5: Absolutely. There's a lot that uh, trace a, a lot that trace their lineage back to England. Um, plenty to the Caribbean. Plenty to France um, and Italy. And Italy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, um, you have some reference there that I I hardly ever encounter. It was, I don't remember what context it was, but you have something where you use coconut water. And when I spent a lot of time in Central America, that's one of the drinks they always had. They had alcohol with coconut water, not in coconut cream, but coconut water. It just seemed to work very well.
5: Absolutely. there There is nothing more refreshing than but chilled coconut water, um, preferably fresh from the coconut on a hot day. And it, and it does take well to mixing with many spirits. Right. Well,
0: this has been a real um, exciting adventure for us, learning all about these cocktails and talking to you guys about it. And uh, um, I, I hope you keep us in mind when you get your next book published. <laughs> <laughs> we will.
5: We absolutely
0: will. Thank you so much. Good talking to you. you.
3: Thank you.